Okay, this is Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, the word of the Lord. It is definitely, as your scripture says, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We've been reading and studying the Sermon on the Mount together, the greatest sermon of all. And we have seen your scripture transform our hearts over these past summer. Lord, your word says the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores our soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are of gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and dripping from the honeycomb. Moreover, By them, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Lord, let us be warned this morning, and let us follow the words of Jesus and the commands of Jesus so that we will be rewarded greatly with you in heaven for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Oh, we did forget one one announcement right here. Mom's group, mom's group. Can't forget the, the mom's. Um, Friday, September 8th will be the first kickoff, and it's going to be here at the church building with a big welcoming breakfast. So I might even show up for that for some uh, eggs and bacon, all right? But uh, ladies, that is for you with with children of of any ages. Come and, and enjoy the mom study group. Life 
is all about the decisions we make. Is it not? Each day we make hundreds, if not thousands, of decisions. Some of them we don't even think about. We just make decisions. They're maybe insignificant. You know, there's not a lot of deliberation of, of thinking through or thinking hard about some of these decisions. They're small. Some, some are medium, some are large, and some are, you know, supersized, right? And I want you to think about this morning. Think about this morning and, and all the decisions that you had to make to get you to here, to get you to church this morning. I bet you it's a lot. We began probably last night of how are we going to wake up this morning, right? Uh, some of us uh, don't need to set an alarm clock. Some of us need to set two alarm clocks, right, to, to wake us up. Some of us, our bodies are just on a clock where we wake up every morning at 7 a.m. With all the young families that we have here, you wait for the first baby cry, right, or the first kid scream. And then you have to make a choice, right? Do I get up? Or how much time do I let them share their feelings, you know, with me that they're up? Right? You have these decisions. And then from there on, everything you do, you decide to do. Such as when to brush your teeth. Let's take a little survey in here. Who immediately after they wake up goes immediately to the bathroom and brushes their teeth? Raise their hand. Hand for you. Who in here waits till after they eat? And then after they eat, they go and Right? So we're all making decisions there. We also make decisions, obviously, on what to eat, what time to eat. Uh, then we go to the closet, what to wear, uh, when to leave, uh, what route to take to get to church. These are, these are all decisions throughout the day. We make hundreds, if not thousands, of decisions. And of course, some of these decisions, I already said, impact our day at some level. Um, but there are other decisions, more weightier decisions, that have bigger consequences, that, that make a bigger splash in our life, so to speak. School has started. We have kids in elementary school and middle school and high school and in college. And, and there's going to be a lot of decisions. The, the, the pressure, the peer pressure that some of our kids are going to face. Uh, 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 do we vape or do we not vape? Vape's that little automatic kind of cigarette kind of thing that's taking our kids by storm. They're going to have to make a decision to, to stand. Uh, maybe you're choosing a college this year, or maybe you chose a college and now you're trying to figure out what your degree is going to be, or, or maybe you're not even going to college at all, you're looking at a trade school, or maybe you're not even looking at a trade school, but you're just, you're just entering the workforce right now. Some in here are contemplating who they're going to marry. It's a big decision. Some in here might have to relocate for a job, and they're thinking through all the pros and cons to make a decision. Life is all about the decisions that we make. Well, over the past 12 weeks, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, as you guys know, and, and this morning, Jesus kind of lands the plane, right? He, he concludes, he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, and he's been, he's been teaching us for, again, for 12 weeks, over three chapters of nothing but Jesus' monologue, preaching, teaching us about the ethics of the kingdom of God, what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. And if you put these practices in place, you're going to get a taste of human flourishing, of human flourishing here on earth, which then should create this longing in us for heaven and to spend eternity with him in ultimate flourishing with Jesus for eternity. Therefore, Jesus today in Matthew 7, 12 through 29 or 13 through 29 makes it extremely clear this morning on how to enter the kingdom of God and how to experience this flourishing. And he, and he tells everyone in here, everyone in here that 
you all, you and me, have a decision to make as we, before we walk out these doors. And this choice, this decision we make, will be the weightiest of all our decisions that we will ever make. This decision on whether to obey or disobey Jesus' command in Matthew 7 will again impact every area of our life here on earth. Not only, not only here on earth, but for all eternity. To disobey this thing will be, lead us to ultimate eternity of eternal suffering and judgment. But to obey, to follow Jesus, to enter the gate, it will lead to an eternal life and abundant of joy and flourishing. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's dive in. First, we're going to look at two gates and two roads, Matthew 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That's another word for hell. And those who are entered by it are many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. And those who find it are few. So we see again the first image here that Jesus is using calls for a decision. He says there's two gates. And after those two gates, there's two roads. And those two two roads lead to two different destinations. One is narrow and leads to eternal life, as I said. The other is wide that leads to eternal destruction. But I want us to focus on that first word, enter. Enter. It's It's a command. It's an imperative. Jesus isn't suggesting something. He's not saying contemplate something. He's commanding something. He's commanding you, me. He's commanding his disciples. He's commanding the crowd. Everyone that's in a shot of an ear of him preaching, he's commanding them to enter. To enter. Again, this is, this is for everyone. The disciples are there. We have to go back to Matthew chapter 5. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, but he's also talking to the crowd that's gathered. So again, this command is for everyone. It's for Jews. It's for Gentiles. It's for men. It's for women. It's for children. It's for everyone in here. Jesus says, enter. And notice his heart behind this command. He just doesn't say, hey, man, there's two gates. Choose whatever you guys will, whatever, you know. No, he tells us which gate to enter. There's a heart behind it. There's a passion. It's almost like Jesus is pleading to us, enter the narrow gate. Why? Because he wants us to receive him. He wants us to enter into life. He wants us to be saved. He says, enter by the narrow gate. That's Jesus' heart. So this is not a dry or ruthless or indifference command. This is a command of love. This is a command of Jesus saying, enter the narrow gate. But we know just by experience that, unfortunately, we see that many people, most people, will rebel against this command. They'll choose to disobey this command and walk down and through the wide gate and the wide path. But why do they choose this path? I think Scripture is clear. They choose it because of Genesis chapter 3, right? So we studied in Genesis. It takes us all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, and and they rebelled against the commands of the Lord, and, and they chose to uh, be their own lords, their own saviors. They were going to make their own decisions. Humanity rebelled against God, and ever since Adam and Eve, it has gone to every human that has ever been born. And that's humanity's ethic. Humanity's ethic, since Genesis chapter 3, is we can do it, but we can do it on our own. Uh, we don't need any help. We indeed don't need a savior. 
It's up to us. Leave me alone. You guys remember Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and just in that short verse from chapter 3 to chapter 11, we just saw this downward spiral of people living after their own ways. And then we get to the Babel, and they're rejecting God, and the people say, hey, let's come together, and we want to build a city, and it's towers to the tops of the heavens, and we will make a name great for ourselves. That's why people choose the wide path, because they don't want to make a name great for God and glorify Him. They want to glorify themselves. Uh, humanity's ethics says this, we, we don't need anyone telling us what to do. We don't need, us to co- need anyone telling us to command us which gate to enter. In fact, look at the wide gate. Look at the wide road. It's, it's, it's easy. It doesn't require much of me of anything. And in fact, it must be better because look at everyone is going through it. And they seem to be happy. It's not hard. Plus, look, it's, it's, it's a much more loving way. Why? Because it's not so narrow. It is inclusive. There's a song that describes this pretty accurately. It's, this is the, some of the lyrics of the human ethic. I want to live easy, live free, season ticket on the one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be taking everything in my stride. This is the wide path. This is the wide gate. It requires no repentance. It requires no faith. It requires no Savior. The sign above this path is just do it. That's the sign. Now contrast that to the narrow gate. That's the wide gate. Now contrast that to the narrow gate. The narrow gate is obviously not wide. It's narrow. Uh, Think of it more like a a, a turnstile at an athletic contest or a concert that you have to enter this this event, this arena, one by one. It's not wide where everyone just kind of masses come. It's one by one, and you can't really bring anything. In fact, you don't bring anything. Uh, there's a couple songs in the 70s, two rock songs that kind of paint this context for us, at least in their titles. Uh, the wide gate is known as the highway to hell, right? The narrow gate is known as the stairway to heaven. Jesus says that the narrow gate is the entry point to eternal life and to life abundantly. Therefore, it's this gate that leads to salvation, and we know that Scripture tells us that the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ's repentance and faith. Therefore, the gate that Jesus tells us to enter is himself. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the way to eternal life. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. In John 10, where he says, I'm the great shepherd, he says this, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will, she will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. In other words, will flourish, will flourish. So Jesus is the gate. So to enter this narrow gate, it requires something from us. It requires repentance and faith. It requires us to see our need for a Savior and see that we can't save ourselves. In fact, we don't want to be left alone. We need help. We need to be saved when we call on Jesus. That's why Jesus begins way back in the beginning of this sermon in in chapter 5. He begins with the Beatitudes in particular. If you guys recall those, you can turn to chapter 5. We're just going to touch on three real quick. But his first thing is, is blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who are spiritually dead. They're spiritually bankrupt. 
Um, They see their need of a Savior because they are destitute spiritually. And because they see their state with no hope, they start to mourn. They start to mourn over their spiritually bankruptness, their deadness, their sin. And that that turns them to repent and and trust in Christ and seek and hunger hunger after His righteousness. Uh, They lay down their rebellion. They lay down their self-autonomy. They lay down the human the humanistic ethic. They confess their sin and follow Jesus. He becomes their Lord, their Savior of their life. And because of that, now there's this internal heart change, transformation. We, we now have communion with the Lord. We have entered the gate. Now we can walk along the path of eternal life with joy and gladness and flourishing. And it also says it's, it's, it's hard. There's the, there is going to be some difficulty in this life. So the question that Jesus asks us this morning is, obviously, have you entered the narrow gate? Or have you done it in the past? Have you seen your need for a Savior? Have you seen that you've been on the road of destruction in the wide path that we are all on since Genesis chapter 3? And then all of a sudden we come to a fork in the road and we hear the gospel and we hear a message like this and it says, you have choice to make. Do you enter through Jesus, with repentance and faith, do you see your need as a Savior, for a Savior? Or do you just continue to go the way of the human ethic? It's my way or the highway. Have you obeyed the command of Jesus to enter? He wants you to enter. We want you to enter. Secondly, we see there's two trees or two fruits in verses 15 through 23 says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So we see this second image that Jesus gives us. Uh, and we're familiar with us. It's, it's healthy trees produce healthy fruits and unhealthy trees produce unhealthy fruits. And the two kinds of trees are, are false prophets or teachers and true prophets and true teachers. And again, if you bear bad fruit, there's a consequence. The consequence is that you will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Again, another picture of eternal judgment. So you have these two pictures, good fruit, Produce, uh, good trees produce good fruit, which gets you to salvation. Bad trees produce bad fruit, gets you cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus, again, his heart. Again, you've got to hear his heart here. It's therefore beware of the false teachers, of the false prophets. He's warning you, much like you know, some people put on their, their neighbor uh, on their fences to warn you of their big dog in the backyard. Beware of the dog. Jesus is saying beware of false teachers. And these false prophets, these false teachers can, can be anyone really in the world. Um, but here, the context, it's, it's someone who's in the church. It's someone who's in this building is who Jesus is addressing. They have come in, uh, and they could be in positions of leadership. Uh, they, they, some wolves have worked their ways up into some churches to be pastors, uh, to be teachers, to be deacons. To lead the men's ministry, to, to lead the women's ministry, to lead life group. They have seeped their way in. 
these false prophets or false teachers. And it makes sense for Jesus to, after saying, hey, choose the, the narrow gate, choose me, choose eternal life, don't go the way of the way. It makes sense for him to say, hey, there's false teachers out there. Why? Because he's warning us. Because there are many false prophets, false teachers out there that, that lead us away from Jesus in the narrow gate. They say stuff like, hey, God is a God of love, and it doesn't matter, no matter how you live, just, just, just be nice, be inclusive, be kind, which is all good, but that's not going to get you to heaven. What gets you to heaven is entering the narrow gate of Jesus. The wide path says, hey, Buddhism is okay, Islam is okay, spiritualism is okay, it's all good. Again, God is an inclusive God. It's, it's those kinds of teachings that the Lord is warning us at that, that can get into the local church. Many denominations are going the way of the wide path because they have received the teachings of false prophets. So basically, any false teacher or any false prophet can be anyone. Anyone that has a message that leads people away from Jesus in the narrow gate. That's what a false teacher is. That's what a false prophet is. So it makes sense that Jesus highlights them right after the gates. And again, we see that false teachers don't come in and, and show their true colors immediately, right? They're ravenous, ravenous wolves looking to devour you, but they come in looking like sheep. They put on the disguise. No one comes in and says, hey, I'm the neighborhood false teacher, right? No one does that. I've come to devour you. Well, sometimes they do. They have a little name tag on it, and elder so-and-so, but um, the reason why I get the neighborhood false teachers is because I watched uh, Spider-Man recently, the newest, latest Spider-Man. Pretty good flick. I like Spider-Man. He was one of my heroes. Iron Man and Spider-Man were my two favorite heroes growing up, and, and I like this Spider-Man. He's a good Spider-Man. But this, this movie uh, uh, sheds light on this principle that these false teachers come in as looking like sheep, even though they're ravenous rules, through the character of Mysterio, Right? Mysterio first comes onto the scene, and he's, and, and he's there with uh, Nick Fury. He's kind of like the coach of the Avengers, right? And he's buddy-buddy and he's with him, and then Spider-Man. And, and, and Mysterio comes in, and he's, he's sacrificial. Uh, he actually engages in some events to save people. He's a good superhero. He's, he's humble. He's, he's looking out for everyone's needs. And it's not until the movie keeps on going till you realize that this guy's not a superhero. He's a villain, He's not out for the good of others. He's out for the good of himself. So he appears first like a a good sheep. But by the end of the movie, it shows that he's a ravenous wolf. That's what the false picture, the the picture Jesus is creating here. And false teachers ever since the beginning, they're they're not new. They've been around ever since the beginning. You, You look throughout the Old Testament, you see Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel giving good portions of Scripture to warn us about these false teachers. You come to the New Testament, it is a consistent thread throughout the New Testament. Be on the watch. Be on the lookout. Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, Jude... And they don't kind of sugarcoat the language. They, they, they call these guys out and these women out for who they are. Very clear language. Jude says they're waterless clouds. He even says they're fruitless trees. He says they're hidden reefs. John says they, they, they speak doctrines of demons. So these are not good people. These are wolves. I love how one commentator puts it regarding false teachers. He says this. He says, when you turn the lights on, the bugs will come, Right? And we know that. 
Especially when we go camp and we get the lantern out, we turn that light on, all of a sudden, here come all the bugs. They're attracted to the light. So the question for us this morning is, how, how do we recognize false teachers in the church, in, in our own church? And Jesus highlights several ways in these verses, but let me point out two. First, it's going to take time. Uh, the second illustration he uses is the illustrations of fruit trees producing fruit. It takes time for a fruit tree to produce fruit. Whether you get the seeds or you just get a little small immature tree, you got, it takes time. You got you to plant it. You got to cultivate it. You got to water it. And you might say that's an orange tree, but it just has leaves on there. You don't know if it's an orange tree or a lemon tree or fruit, what kind of fruit tree it is until it grows, until it matures, and then until it produces fruit. And then we see in verses 16 and also verses 20, it says we will recognize what kind of tree it is and what kind of fruit tree it is by the fruit it produces. And if it's a good tree, it will produce good fruit. If it's a bad tree, it will produce bad fruit. And as we look at Matthew chapter 7, we see that it seems that these false teachers, at least as they're growing, look like good fruit trees. Verse 21, they're saying all the right things. Lord, Lord. They're using the Christian ease, the Christian lingo. They're actually even serving people, it seems. They're doing good works. They're casting out demons and doing other mighty works in the Lord's name. So at first, while this tree starts to grow and you start to see this fruit, it looks like it's good, edible fruit until we harvest it. And then until we take a bite and we see that it's not good, it's bad. And by the way, has anyone ever taken a bite of bad fruit in here? Is it just like, it's either as hard as a rock, which is if you get that fruit, that's good. Or sometimes if it's rotten, it's like real grainy or liquidy. Isn't that the nastiest thing? It looks good till you take a bite and you're like, you almost throw up because it's just so nasty. So this is a great illustration so they look like it's good fruit, but in the end, it's, it's, no, it's no good. Over the years, we have had individuals like this come to the crossing. And in particular, um, especially when we are a church plant. A church plant is like when that light turns on, all the bugs come. When you plant a church, it seems like everyone has an agenda. Every false prophet, every false teacher wants to come in and kind of subvert what you're doing, which makes sense, Right? Uh, the enemy doesn't want any light posts, new light posts, new churches being planted. And so we had to deal with these individuals a lot. And they would come in as looking like sheep. Man, we just want to serve. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about making disciples. And you're like, awesome, come on in, let's join. And then we start to walk. And we start to water and start to cultivate. And all of a sudden the, the fruit starts to come and it looks good. But then we take a bite. And then we're like, whoa. We see the agendas coming out. And it's not for God's glory, it's for their own. And then when we call them out on it or bring it to it in love, of course, but we call them out, they're like, hey, 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 Matthew 7, don't judge, right? Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? Matthew, uh, Matthew, Matthew, yes, Matt, uh, gave a great um, a sermon on that a couple weeks ago on how to judge without being judgmental. And, and, you're, and, and I heard one commentator say, yeah, you're right, man, I'm not to judge. I'm not going to be the one like at the courtroom on a bench and, and judging you. So we just take the word judge out of it, and he says, I'm just called to be a fruit inspector, right? <laughs> and that's where I am. I'm just a fruit inspector. I'm just, I'm just testing the fruit of your words and your actions. That's what I'm doing. Now, Jesus warns us to beware of the false prophets, and it could be any one of us in here. But I want us to take a step back. Instead of pointing the finger and looking outward, I want us to make sure we first look inward. Make sure we all are first 
sheep, true sheep. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And so one of the things I like to do on myself is, is called the, the fruit test, right? And what I do is I use Galatians chapter 5 to, 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 to do this. And um, we know Galatians chapter 5, there's a, a couple lists. There's the, the lust of the flesh, and then there's the fruit of the Spirit. And, and one of those will be predominantly in my life at that moment. Uh, the lusts of the flesh um, are these things. And in other words, the question under this is, what is my life producing? Um, is it producing sexual immorality? You know, am I having constant lustful thoughts? Um, 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 and my next one, anger. Is, is that what is ruling? Is that the, the fruit I'm producing more often? Jealousy, strife, envy, drunkenness, gossip, uh, gossip, et cetera, et cetera, such as the like. As, as I take a step back, I'm like, ooh, this is, this, is, this is a check. This is how I test myself. The fruit test. Is, is this what my trajectory of my life looks like? These, these things or others? Or is it like the fruit of the Spirit? Is it, is, it, is it love? Is it joy? Is it peace? Is it self-control? Is it patience, kindness, goodness? Is it, is it gentleness? Is it, are these the things that are more describing my life? Are, 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 are people being nourished by these traits? It's, it's called the fruit test. Now, now, hear me. No one in here is perfect, right? No one in here is perfect. I'm not going to be a perfect in all the fruits of the Spirit, but it's the trajectory of life. If you enter the narrow gate, there should be a progression in your life where you look more like fruits of the Spirit than you do lust of the flesh, even though sometimes in your life you're going to look at Aaron and you're like, dude, you're an angry man. Why are you so angry? But I love how one summed it up about the Christian and, and dealing with sin. He said this, a Christian is someone that sin clings to and an unbeliever is someone that clings to sin. And I think that's a, that's a good description of what the fruit test is because as I look at the fruit test, yes, my life should be the trajectory of the fruits of the Spirit. I will sometimes see the lust of the flesh will be the things that I produce, but I mourn over that. You should mourn over that. And when I see these, these lusts in me, I confess and repent and, and, and ask for help and forgiveness where the unbeliever, someone says, man, that's, that's good for me. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. It's not, it's not hurting me. It's not hurting others. I don't care what it's doing. It's, it feels good to me, therefore I do it. So a Christian is someone that sin clings to. A non-Christian is someone that clings to sin. So examine yourself. Examine yourself to see what kind of fruit you are producing in your life. Second thing that it shows us there is that we will all produce good fruit when we're connected to the vine, the vine of Jesus, as John 15 says. Because probably one of the scariest verses in all the Bible is found in verse 23, where it says, On the day of judgment, Jesus will say to some people, Depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And he's referring to those that, that said, Lord, Lord, and, and did serve some in, in, in some ways. And what's the point here? The point here is, is the people that hear this Verdict, depart from me, I never knew you, are people that don't have a genuine heart renewed relationship with Jesus. They are not connected to the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you are connected to me, you're going to produce much fruit. But these are people that aren't connected to the vine. Verse 21 says that you do not do the will of my Father. Verse 23 specifically says, I never knew you. Your work has been works of lawlessness. In other words, these individuals, 
as you, you peel the curtain back, they're banking on their own self-righteousness to earn their salvation. They're saying the right things. They're doing the right things. It's a, a works righteousness. Uh, their hope for salvation is outward through external works. Lord, Lord, serving the poor, etc., etc., etc. Here's the key. They try to jump on the road of eternal life without entering through the gate of Jesus and his righteousness that is given to us in repentance and faith. They are looking to their own righteousness, which is the ultimate act of lawlessness. Proverbs 30, 12. I've been a, I've been a Christian for, I don't know, a long time. Um, 30, 30 years almost. And I, and, I, and I can't remember ever leaving reading this verse. I might have, but when I first, when I heard this, when I read this verse in the commentary, it hit me like a ton of bricks describing this, intervi- this individual. Proverbs 30, verse 12. Those, uh, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Whew. That's this person. They're clean in their own, they're, they're looking to earn their salvation on their own merits and works. And they're not looking to Jesus in the end. They're just not washed of their filth. Therefore, Jesus says, I never knew you. I don't have an intimate personal relationship with you. There was never an internal recognition of, of this person being poor in spirit, mourning over their sin, repentance and faith. When God says, I never knew you, it obviously doesn't mean I don't know who you are. I'm sorry, I forgot your name. You know, can you kind of remind me who you are and then maybe I'll change my verdict? No, that's, he knows everyone. He's sovereign. He knows everyone. He knows everyone's name. He knows everything about every person that ever lived. It means he doesn't have an intimate relationship with you. He doesn't own your heart. He says, you're not my disciples that have placed their faith and trust in me. You, your dependence on me. I am not your Lord. I am not your Savior. Therefore, this knowing is an experiential relationship at a heart level. These are the ones that hear the verdict, I never knew you. Their heart, it's all outward. It's all external. Who is a perfect example of this in the Bible? Judas. I mean, think of Judas. He was with Jesus for three years. Jesus sent Judas out to two by two to, to do miracles. And, and Judas did, and he came back, and they rejoiced, right? But in the end, we saw Judas's true character. His heart was not Jesus'. He was after his own glory. So look at your life. What kind of fruit are you producing Is it the fruit that proves that you are connected to Jesus? Again, John 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you are joined to me, you will bear good fruit. And you will bear it to the end. You will bear it to the end. Thirdly, we see the final image. Two builders, two foundations, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat down on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and it was a great and great was his fall. So here is the third and final image that Jesus gives and we see there's two builders There's the wise builder who hears the words of Jesus, obeys them, puts them into practice, and builds his house on solid rock, on bedrock. And then you have the foolish man, the 
the Greek word is moros, where we get what moron, who hears Jesus teaching and does not put him in the practice, does not put him in the practice, does not build his house on the bedrock, but he builds it on sand. And when the storm comes, we see the judgment. When the storms come, the house that's built on the faulty foundation will crumble, and it's a great crumble. But the one that's built on the, that's the bedrock stands. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying there's two houses. The first thing we got to do is we got to look at the houses, kind of compare the houses side by side. And what we see is we can't tell the difference between which house is built on a good foundation and which house is built on faulty sand. They both look good. Paint looks good, looks colorful, it's bright. The siding looks good, you know, no chips or wear on that. The roof is intact, the, the windows aren't broken, it's clear. Man, both these houses look good. These houses are illustrations of life. And so even in this room, as we can look around, and we're all, you know, human beings, male, female. Um, we're all here at the, at the crossing. We, we, we look at each other, we can't tell if our lives, who, who, who really is following in Christ and who can't just by mere appearance. So Jesus says we got to go a little deeper. And this is where Jesus says, now we got to look at that. Look under the house. Look under the house. What is the house built on? What is your life, my life, what is it built on? What is its foundation? Is it, is it built on the sand or is it built on bedrock? Because the foundation is everything. As I'm told, I'm not a builder, but as I'm told, the foundation is not solid. The house is going to crash When the storms come, one said this, it is not the beauty of the building you should look at. It's the construction of the foundation that will make it stand for the test of time. Reed and I, in our our break, we've been introduced to this thing called Netflix, right? And so we've been watching some shows. A couple of the shows we've been watching have been more uh, medieval shows. Um, um, Shows that take us way back into the, you know, uh, the 1100s, the, the 1500s, and these massive castles and these massive castles that are built. And, and we all know that. We could go to, to Europe, and, and some of these castles are still standing after 1,000, 2,000 years, right? Why? Because their structure is so, so solid. It's built on a, a solid foundation. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that we should build our lives on, on Him, the rock, the, the solid foundation, and when we do that, our, our house will stand. So Jesus is asking you and me this morning is like, what is your life built on? Uh, as we look under the house, if we, if we got to look under your house, under your life, what is, what is your life built on? Are you listening to the chief architect? Are you hearing Jesus' words and, and, and obeying them and following them? Again, not perfectly, but is that your heart? Is that your desire? Is that the trajectory of your life? Are you following his plans for your life? So we look at the house, can't really tell. We, we look at the foundation and we, and we can get an idea. And then we finally look forward. What's coming against the house, so to speak? The storms, right? We, we, we live in a Genesis 3 world and we understand that, that life is hard and storms are coming. And they're coming to beat down uh, our house and in our lives. The rains said, the floods came, and the winds blue. See, over the past 12 weeks, probably almost 10 hours plus of um, teaching on the Sermon of Mount, the question is, as you've been listening, as you've been hearing Jesus teach from His Word, 
where might you have to do some remodeling in your life? Uh, where in your life do you have maybe a crack pipe you need to fix? Or, or, or maybe a little, a little crack in the, the stucco? Um, again, it's not the foundation. If you are in Christ, the, the, the foundation will never crack. We're not talking about the foundation. The foundation of Christ is solid, will never crack, will never fall apart, will never need repair. We're talking about the structure of the house. I mean, as I sat back and I've been listening to the sermon series as we've been going, we haven't been here for all of them. We've been going to some other churches as well. But the Lord revealed, man, there's some, there's some remodeling needs to happen in your life, Aaron. There's some, there's some crack pipes. One in particular was that of prayer. You know, is my, my prayer life had to, to change a little bit. And he, he really worked on me this whole summer, the, the sermons I was hearing on prayer. The other one was anger. You know, um, when we started this sabbatical, it wasn't like I was like, you know, um, oh, you know, incredible Hulk kind of angry, but I was getting some salty in some areas. And then the Lord had to do some remodeling in my heart and in my life. And so where has that been in for you? As you have sat through 12 weeks and 10 hours of preaching, if it, if, if you, if it hasn't impacted you at all, maybe there's a, there's a pause to say, okay, where is my... Where is my life really built on? Is it built on the foundation or is it built on the sand? So where might you need to fix something? Could it be in the area of lust? Could it be in the area of your word and oaths? That your yes be yes, your no, no. Could it be in the area of giving? giving? Could it be in the area of forgiving someone? Relational harmony. What, what is the area the remodeling that needs to happen in your life. And once you figure that out, get with someone and, and talk to them about that. This is where community aspect, we're going to be seeing this over the next couple of weeks. It's not that we just build the house and we're all by ourselves. We need, we need repair men and women to come help us fix the house. That's community. And that's where you guys all can, can build and, and love and help one another is because everyone in here is gifted with gifts, and some of you have the great gift of encouragement. Some of you have walked through some of these areas of, of, of struggle, and you, you sound success, and you can share, hey, this is what has helped me. Maybe it will help you. So, what is your house built on? Are you heeding the words of Jesus and putting him in the practice? And then Jesus now calls you a wise man because you're obeying him. Or are you the foolish man that's disobeying I love how Jesus closes up in 728 and says, When Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he's teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Again, it just goes back as you've been sitting through this, uh, this summer and you've been hearing these words. Have you been captivated by Jesus? Have you been astonished by his teachings? Have they amazed you? Have they, have they not only hit your ears, but have they hit your heart? Where it causes you to be amazed at the goodness of the Lord, the love of the Lord, the authority of the Lord. I began this message by saying that life is all about decisions we make. And so my prayer for you and for me is that in here this morning, when we walk out those doors, that we have listened and obeyed Jesus. That we all have chosen to enter the narrow gate. That leads to eternal life. Father, thank you for...
the way you have landed the plane. It's a clear call to a decision, uh, a clear call between two options. We live in a land where we have multiple options, but in Scripture, for eternal life, there's only two, to obey and to repent and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is the narrow gate that leads to everlasting life or not to. So I pray that everyone in here this morning has made the wise decision to listen to your words, to to hear your heart in these commands, the heart of love, to choose me, choose Jesus, the narrow gate. And in that, we will lead to eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We take communion every week, and it just illustrates the goodness of 